Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Matthew, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, as you see in this passage, starts off with the word therefore. And as always, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to find out what it's there for. That's the whole point. So I'm going to do a re quick recap of what we looked at last week. Last week we saw that Jesus taught us not to trust in money to provide for us by either storing it up and hoarding it or focusing on it instead of Him. So that was the whole point of last week's message. And we're not to treasure money and have our hearts go to money. We're to trust in Him as our provision. And with that in mind, we also saw last week that as impressive as large stores of wealth look, they're fleeting and cannot be counted on. We also saw last week that real life comes when we get our contentment and satisfaction from our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So what I want to do is I want to just take you back to three passages of Scripture that we looked at last week. But the third one especially is going to launch us into where we go tonight. So go with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. All right, so your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. By the way, isn't that the exact opposite of what the world teaches? The world's mindset is he who dies with the most toys wins and building and amassing and accruing. And actually, Jesus says that's actually not life. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I remember hearing a story years ago about a man who wanted to be buried in a gold Cadillac. And seriously, he was buried in a gold Cadillac and they had to use a crane to lower him into the ground because the hole had to be big enough for the Cadillac. And as they were lowering this man in this gold Cadillac into the ground, somebody was overheard saying, now that's living. So, <laughs> all right, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verses 17 and following. It says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't that interesting? Look at how the rich are described. 
As for the rich, what? In this present age. Do you see that? It's almost like he's given us a little clue to the fact that just because you're preaching this present age doesn't mean you will be in the, in the next one to come. And doesn't the Bible talk about those who are poor in this world are going to be rich in the one to come? So keep that in mind. Go to 1 Timothy 6, though. You're in chapter 6 already, but back up to verses 6 through 10. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that, that so the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Look again at verse 8, though. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, some of you would say, wait a minute, Jim. These last verse you just read said, said that we should be content with food and clothing. But our section for study tonight in Matthew 6 shows Jesus saying, don't even worry about food and clothing. Anybody caught that interesting dynamic? Here it says that we're to be content with food and clothing. Yet in Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about food and don't worry about clothing. So how are we going to put that together? Go ahead. Exactly. That's the whole point. And that's where, that's where we're going to be going. When you're truly content, you're not going to worry about it. And that's the whole point. These don't disagree. They actually work together. So remember, Jesus is teaching us on where our focus and where our trust and dependence should be. We don't need to worry about these things and act like God doesn't know or God doesn't care because he does know and he does care. Go to Matthew chapter 6 and look again at verses 7 and 8. Matthew chapter 6, look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't miss that. He already knows what you need before you ask Him. Jump over to chapter 6, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Go to Mark chapter 8. This is one of the best ways that I've seen the Scripture just illustrate this to us, the fact that He already knows what our needs are. In Mark chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 3. It says, "...in, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat..." He called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. I was doing a, a series of messages on the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 and so on. And as I was working on this series of messages, that jumped off the page at me. It hit me. Look closely what Jesus says. He goes, I know how many days it's been since they've eaten. I know how far they've come from, and I don't want them to faint on the way. God knows, folks, if you haven't eaten. God knows what your needs are. He knows. He keeps track of the hairs on our head, and the Bible says he keeps our tears in a jar. There's nothing that goes on in our life that he doesn't know about. But let's be honest. Hasn't Satan been able to whisper in many of our, our ears a few times and make us wonder, does God know really what's going on? Does God know that, I, that the deadline's coming up? 
You ever, you ever heard that? I, it was actually, I had an older gentleman, a wonderful older pastor. He's with the Lord now in heaven, but uh, he lived up in Michigan. And he, he told me this years ago. He, his name was Dick. And he said, uh, Jim, he said, God has never, ever let me down. But he scared me many times. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? There's wisdom in what he said. And God knows let me just share a story from my personal life. Actually, I shared this last night at the Tuesday Bible study. And as I was sharing it, my wife corrected me in the middle of it because she realized that I actually didn't remember it totally correct. But, but, uh, but actually, she remembered it better. Uh, let me explain. Years ago, when my wife and I were first married, we were back in 1990, uh, we, we really didn't have a whole lot of money. We were living in a trailer in a seminary, on the seminary campus in a trailer park. And we got to a point... Uh, in that first year of marriage where we really, literally ran out of money and ran out of food. And when I say ran out of money and ran out of food, my wife, I thought it, we had like 25 bucks to our name. She said it was $4 because she did the, book, the checkbook back then. And literally we got to a point where we had no money coming in. I didn't know when the next payday was because I got paid whenever I painted a house. And we had $4 left in the bank. And that's checking and savings. All right. There was $4 left. And all we had in our house was a box of macaroni and cheese and a can of Spam. Now, at this time, it was a Wednesday night. Our church, at the church I was associate pastor of at that time, didn't have Wednesday night suppers. It was a big church, but they didn't have Wednesday night suppers because the fellowship hall was also the gymnasium. And on Wednesday nights, the youth would use the gymnasium. And so they didn't have a Wednesday night supper. But there was a prayer meeting. So my wife and I had told nobody what was going on. We had no one knew how poor we were and how hungry we were. And that we, we, when I say there was nothing in the house, I literally mean you could open every cupboard in the house and there was nothing. There was nothing in the refrigerator. There was nothing in the freezer. Everything was barren except one box of macaroni and cheese and one can of Spam. And that's all there was. And so we sat down to dinner before we headed to prayer meeting that Wednesday night with $4 left in our bank account. And that was all there was. That was our last meal. And by the way, if you ever made macaroni and cheese without milk, it doesn't taste good. But we mixed it up with just water. And then we took the can of Spam and cut it up into chunks and mixed it in the macaroni and cheese. And that was our meal. And we prayed, saying, God, we don't know what we're going to do, but would you please provide for us? And we didn't tell anybody. We get to the prayer meeting. After the prayer meeting's over, a man named Richard Bird came up to us. He was a Sunday school teacher of one of the Sunday school classes at that church. And he said, do you have your pickup truck with you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, good. He said, because our Sunday school class bought you a gift, and when you need your truck, come over to my house. So I don't know. We have a Zuzu pickup, a little, little Zuzu pup. And we drove to Richard Bird's house, and when he opened the front door to his house and opened the front door, the whole floor of his living room was covered wall to wall with grocery bags, full grocery bags. And it hit us. While we were sitting in our trailer, praying over our last meal, those groceries already were on his living room floor. He knows. Folks, it filled our truck. I mean, filled. We had a topper on the back, crammed it full of groceries. We went back to our trailer, and the house went from empty to every cupboard full. We're talking frozen turkeys, hams. We're talking cream corn we were going as we were, we were opening the cup and just filled the cupboards up. And, and, and it's just amazing how God showed us not only that he could miraculously provide, 
But those groceries were already waiting for us before we even asked. But we asked, and he had already met the need. Go to 1 Kings chapter 19. In 1 Kings chapter 19, look at verses 1 through 8. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the, like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Here Elijah was wanting to quit. And God not only shows up, God brings him food and water. And then lets him sleep some more. And then says, Hey, wake up. Eat some more. Folks, let me just tell you, God knows. He cares. Don't let Satan blind you to that truth. Because when God puts you in those tests, when God does scare you, you're sometimes going to be tempted to think that God doesn't know or doesn't care. And by the way, haven't we heard people say that for years? That God doesn't know and God doesn't care. That's not what the scripture teaches. I also want you to notice something profound in this passage we're studying. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. Notice how God uses what he has already been showing us in creation to point out how more valuable we are than the birds or the flowers. Look closely at his answer. He says in verse 25, we'll go to verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, of more value than they? And then he goes in verse 28, and he says, uh, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Folks, what I want you to notice, and this is what we're going to spend some time chasing, because it's worth chasing. When Jesus was wanting them to realize these deep spiritual truths, he didn't share some new deep spiritual truth. He just reminded them of what he had already been revealing about himself in creation. When people were worrying about what they're going to eat and what they're going to drink, all he said was, look at the birds. In other words, the birds have been teaching you this truth about me for years. Look at the flowers. The flowers have been teaching you this spiritual truth about me for years. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. 
Romans chapter 1, look at verses 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Don't miss that. God's already revealed who he is to all of us through creation. And, and, and the big parts of who he is, his divine nature, his internal, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen through what has been made. And as I started to kind of pray over this, I started to realize that there's two things that I've started to notice in the scriptures. That when God's trying to reveal truth to man, he uses two things. One, he points them back to creation. And the other one is this. He points them back to what he's already said in his word. You ever notice that about the two men on the road to Emmaus? They had seen, well, they had definitely walked with Jesus and been part of the group. They had heard that he'd risen from the dead. The women had come back and said they had seen the angels and that he had risen. And the two men, Peter and John, ran to the tomb. And they came back and reported that he was gone. But they weren't too sure. And as they go back discouraged to go to Emmaus, Jesus shows up. And all he does the whole time is reveal to them or remind them of Scripture, what had already been said. And all through Scripture, when Jesus came on the scene, he didn't say new things to reveal that he was the Messiah. He just quoted the Old Testament. He even said to them in John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the Scriptures that speak about me. He said in Matthew chapter 22, he said, look, you don't, you don't understand. You're in error because you don't know the Word of God nor the power of God. And so God always, we can't say, well, I didn't know. Yes, you do. He's revealed a lot of the stuff you need to understand about him through what he's already, been, already made. And it's already here in the book. It's been here all along. Let me give you another example. Go to Psalm chapter 8. Turn your TVs off and go outside once in a while. It'll do you some spiritual good. A lot of times when I really need to go spend some time with God in prayer, I'll wait until night. And when everybody in the house is quiet, of course, it's a lot quieter now that my wife and I are empty nesters. I'll go out on my back porch and I'll just look at the stars. And it reminds me of his power and how big I am in comparison. Listen to Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, there's something in this passage that I want you to see. Go back to verse uh, 3. It says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your, hand, your fingers, 
and the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him? If you don't mind writing in your Bible, write the word plural next to that word him. The, when the, the first one there in verse 4 says, What is man that you're mindful of him? The first him is plural in the Hebrew. And then it says, And the son of man that you care for him. And that one's singular. It's, it's important that you understand why. By the way, uh, you go to verse 5, Yet you have made him, that's singular, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him, that's singular, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That's singular. And you put all things under his feet. Does anybody want to know why the first one is plural and the rest of them are all singular? Mankind and Son of God. Well, and the mankind and Jesus. The Hebrew writer, exactly. But we're all sons of God in a sense. So, but, but yes, you're right. The Hebrew writer actually quotes from this passage when it's talking about Jesus. When he's talking about Jesus. So there's a truth here that God wants us to see. Does he care about us? Yes. What's man that you're even mindful of him? But at the same time, it begins to point us to the one who's going to make it possible for us to be in a right relationship with God. We don't, for the sake of time, have time to take you there, but write this down in your notes and write down Psalm 111, verses 1 through 10. Psalm 111, verses 1 through 10. Again, the psalmist spends some time just, just talking about how God revealed himself through creation. But what I want to do is I want to take you to Job 38. Go to Job 38. You're in Psalm. Just back up one book. Go to Job chapter 38. As I wonder how many of you ever noticed what God does and says when he shows up to Job to answer Job's questions. You remember Job starts off real good. He said, naked I came into the world, naked I'll return. And he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. But the longer he goes the more he starts to say, I wish I could have a face-to-face -face with God, but who can have a face-to-face -face with God, you know? But if I did, I would be able to, I'd want to ask him a few things. And God shows up in chapter 38. And he says, I understand you want to ask me a couple of questions. Let me ask you some first, then you can ask me all you want. And then God goes on for four chapters non-stop. But listen, he goes on for four chapters about his already revealed answers about himself as revealed in creation. I'm just going to read to you just chapter 38. But listen to how God answers Job. It says, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens the counsel by words without knowledge? Dress yourself for action like a man. I will question you, Job, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with the doors and when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds and it, it made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? 
It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble and the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on a desert where there is no man? To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you, lead, can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are, who has put wisdom on in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? If you were to keep reading, you realize he's not even barely got started yet. But don't miss this. When Jesus is trying to teach spiritual truth, he says, look at creation. It's already revealed a lot that you want and need to know about me has already been revealed through creation. And as I already touched on, he always brings us back to the Old Testament and the word that has been spoken. I'm going to say this to you. Hopefully you'd never make an idol and pray to it, and trust in it to provide you with all your needs. No, none of you would do that, right? Hopefully you would, none of you would make an idol, put that little idol there, and pray to it that it would provide for you, right? You would hopefully never do that. Be careful. Because whenever we look to ourselves or to any other human to take care of us, we make an idol. Whenever we trust in ourselves to meet the need or expect somebody else to meet the need that's not God, we actually are making an idol and trusting in that idol to provide for us. Go back to Romans chapter 21. Go for it. They give you a little Buddha? Give, give it a Buddha. Nah, yeah, and just say thank you very much. And Wait a minute, it depends on who gives it to you, because my grandmother went through this spell where she was doing ceramics, and she 
Mm -hmm. And she found these Buddhas. She was no way a Buddha. Mm -hmm. And again, you do what God tells you to do, but I'm going to tell you from Scripture. Well, you, 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 <laughs> well, and personally, again, I'm going to let you and you walk with the Lord, do what you, the Lord tells you to do. For Jim, I believe God has already made clear to me over the years because I've dealt with those type of issues that I'm not to have that kind of a thing. The Bible is very, very clear. When he sent the nation of Israel into the promised land and he says, and you wipe all these people out, don't keep their idols. Don't even look at them. Don't even keep them around. Again, you're still trying to defend. I'm saying you you do what you feel like he's leading you to do. If you're asking for my wisdom, the scripture says, don't even keep it around because there's because some people might come in and say, oh, why's Jim got this? You know, maybe Jim's not all that he pretended to be because he's got, you know what I'm saying? And then I have to try to. The Bible says to avoid all the appearance of evil. On top of that, there are some people that might go. Well, maybe it wouldn't hurt to pray to this little fat guy anyway. You know, things aren't going real good. And God's, you know what I'm saying? You never know. That, that's why the Bible says don't even play with it. Get rid of it. Don't even keep it around. So there you go. All right. Go to Romans chapter 1. Look at verses 21 through 25. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever Amen. Welcome to the USA 2019. Yeah, definitely. Let me just tell you, folks, we, we would all say, I would never worship an idol. But we do. When we put our trust and our dependence and our faith in a human. Go to Psalm 118 real quick. Go to Psalm 118 and look at verses 8 and 9. Psalm 118, look at verses 8 and 9. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That even means, don't even put trust in your government. Go ahead, Glenn. You don't obey them, but you're not trusting that the government's going to take care of you. But that's what I'm saying. But there are people that do. There are people that actually put trust that the government's going to take care of them. Hey, some of you are upset because you felt like an individual cheated you at some point in your life. And you wouldn't be in the financial situation you'd be in right now if it was so-and-so hadn't been on. Oh, you still think man's bigger than God. Let me, let me chase something for you real quick. If I were to ask you, how many of you would say to me, I'd love to have more faith in God? How many of you would raise your hand and say, I'd love to have more faith in God? Well, I set you up again, but put your hands down. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is walking on the water in a storm. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out of the boat and walk on the water with you. And Jesus says, come. Now, by the way, keep that in mind. Peter didn't step out on the water and hope that Jesus would cover him. 
he only stepped out in faith after Jesus spoke. Faith only begins after Jesus has said something. You put faith in what he said. You don't believe something and hopefully he'll cover you. Faith is he said it, I believe it. All right, now, but what happens is as he's walking on the water, all of a sudden the scripture said he starts to look at the wind and the waves and he started to sink. And Jesus says something interesting to him. He says, oh, you of little faith. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, hang on for a second. The dude had enough faith to get out of a boat in a storm and step out on water. And you say he has little faith? Well, stick with me. Chapter 15, he goes into this area and there's a Gentile woman from Tyre and Sidon. And uh, she asked him to help. And he says, it's not right for the children's bread to go to the dogs. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Her response is awesome. She says, but even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. In other words, what she says is, you're the only one that has what I need. And so if I have to be a dog in order to get it, I'll be a dog. Because even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus turns to her and he says, woman, you have great faith. Hang on for a second. Peter has enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm, and he's told he has little faith. The woman says, I'll take crumbs, and he, and he says, you have great faith. You go to chapter 17 of Matthew, Jesus says this, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'd be moved. By the way, has anybody ever seen a mustard seed? If you haven't, if I have one on the tip of my finger, you couldn't see it right now. That's how small they are. So listen, if Jesus says, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain, that must mean that the amount of faith I have doesn't have to be very big, does it? Let me tell you what the Bible definition of great faith versus little faith is. Great faith or little faith is not determined by the size of your faith, but it's by the size of your God. Put that definition now back to the stories we just looked at in the Bible. What happened when Peter was there on the water? He started looking at the wind and the waves. They started getting bigger in his eyes. Jesus got smaller in comparison, and his faith got smaller. Why? Because his God got small. See, the storm was bigger than Jesus. The woman says, you're so big and so powerful, I'll just take a crumb. She had great faith. Why? Because she had more faith? No, her God was bigger. Let me prove to you that you got enough faith. You guys go to the doctor, and they prescribe medicine for you. And the, the doctor writes out your prescription on a piece of paper, hands it to you, and tells you to go take this to the pharmacist. You look at it, and you can't read it. You don't know what they wrote. All you know is, is that he wrote something that you can't read, right? He could have written, kill this person and have fun doing it. You don't know. You take a piece of paper, you don't know what it says. You go to a pharmacist that you don't know, who's in a room full of medicine that could kill you in an instant. You hand him the piece of paper. He whistles while he puts pills in a jar, hands them to you. You put them in your mouth. Don't tell me you need more faith. You got plenty of faith. You want greater faith? You need to see God for who he really is. You don't need more faith. You need a big God. You need to see him for who he is. And when he grows in your understanding, your faith will grow. You understand? It's not the size of your faith. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Let me show you the danger of trusting in man. This is a passage of scripture that I have quoted for years and will continue to quote until I die. I always quote verse 9, but some of you may have noticed this and maybe most of you have never noticed it. But I have never really fully quoted the whole verse to you. You've heard me say over the years, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've heard me say that, right? 
Well, let me tell you the story here. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. And to set the stage as you're going there, let me just kind of catch you up with what's going on. The northern kingdom of Israel is fighting against the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern king of Judah, his name is Asa. The northern kingdom's king is Basha. The northern kingdom of ten, ten tribes is fighting against the southern kingdom of two tribes. And they've left where they are in Israel, come down to Judah, and they're attacking them. And they're attacking the southern kingdom, and they've built this city called Ramah. It's an area where they built siege works, and they've made it so that the people in the, city of, in the area of Judah can't go out. They've just shut them off. They're starving them out. They can't do anything. They can't get supplies in. They can't get away. And so they're about to be defeated. And so the king of the southern kingdom, Asa, sends word to the king of Syria. And he says, break your covenant with the northern kingdom and make one with me. And I'll give you treasuries from the temple. And go and fight against the northern kingdom for me. And he does. And it works. Syria, the king of Syria, goes and fights against the northern kingdom while they're down fighting Judah. And they get word that their home area is being attacked. They quickly stop working in Ramah and building that city. And they run back to go protect their land and their families. And while they run back, the Bible says the people of Judah all get out of Judah. And they go and they gather up all the spoils of that area that the northern kingdom had been building. And they were able to build two or three cities from all the stuff that they collected. Sure looked like it worked, right? Listen to chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to, the king, to Asa, the king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yeah, because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Here's the rest of the verse that I rarely quote. You've done foolishly in this, and from now on, you'll have wars. Of course, if you go on, Asa gets mad at the prophet and throws him in prison. Listen to what the scripture says, folks. You might have even been, quote unquote, successful in your trusting in man. But God keeps track. And he says, if you want to trust in man, go ahead. But you want real contentment? That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment is resting in God. Totally trusting in him. And how many of you thought, well, maybe if so-and-so will just hurry up and die and give me that inheritance. Or if so-and-so will just write me a check. Or, and you're still looking to man to meet your need. Go to the Father. You want real contentment? Go to the Father. Go to the Father. Now, let me ask you this quick question, too. What good does, it do you, uh, what good does worrying do about anything besides make yourself miserable and no fun to be around? Let me tell you something about your bodies that God's designed that you might not know. Stress, actually, your body's been designed to deal with stress in a good way. When, when a stressful situation occurs, your body's been designed by God to produce adrenaline and your body's ready to respond to it. So you focus, you, 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 you get really clear, you know what I'm saying? Your body's been designed to handle the situation. But your body was also designed by God, once the situation's over, to release the stress. 
release all that. What happens is, is if you become worried or anxious, your body will produce that, but it never releases it. And eventually, it starts tearing your body apart. And it's not good for you. God designed your body to make you focus when a situation. You ever have a, a, a deer jump out in front of your car or a kid chase a ball? You know what I'm talking about. That feeling that you get in your body, it's been designed by God for that, to make you focus and be able to respond appropriately. But if you stay focused and you stay stressed, your body's going to start tearing itself apart because it's not designed to stay that way. And when we worry, we act like we don't know who God really is. Remember back in chapter 6, he said, even the Gentiles, they worry about those things. Those that don't know God are the ones that worry about this stuff. But you're of more value. See, our focus should daily be renewed and put back where it belongs. Our trust should be squarely centered on God who will tell us what we're to do in each situation. And when he does, we obey him, trusting in him to provide for us and make it work. I'm going to give you an illustration from Scripture, but I want to say this to you again. Listen closely. Our focus should be daily renewed and put back where it belongs. Our trust should be squarely centered on God who will tell us what we're to do in each situation. And when he does, we obey him, trusting in him to provide for us and to make it work. Go to 1 Kings 17. I'll show you what I mean. Now, I, I didn't do this by accident. We read 1 Kings 19 earlier. Now we're going to go earlier in that situation to 1 Kings 17. Remember Elijah was the one who was running from Jezebel in chapter 19 and wanted to die. But just two chapters earlier in 1 Kings 17, look at what happens in verses 1 through 9. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these next years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and he lived by the brook Kareth, that's east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Don't miss this. Elijah stands in front of the king of Israel at this time, who's been walking in sin. And he says to him, there won't be any rain in Israel except when I say. Because of your sin, because of your disobedience, because you've not been trusting in God, because you've been worshiping these other false gods, God has given me the permission and the authority to say that there will be no rain here until I say so. And then God says, okay, you've made your prophecy. Now you'd be a wise man to go get out of there and hide. By the way, there have been a few sermons I preached over the years where I've wanted to preach them and just get away. <laughs> so he does, and he goes where, where God tells him to go. Listen closely to what he says. He said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Has anybody ever meditated on that for a little bit? When I mean meditate, you want to put yourself in a situation, you want to think about it, let the Spirit of God talk to you. Do you what do you know about ravens? Do they share their bread? Do they share their meat? 
they'll steal stuff out of your golf cart. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Glenn and I know this. I know that there, there are actually ravens at the Habitat Golf Course and others who wait on hole number 10. They wait on the tee box of hole number 10. You know why? Because they know that guys will stop and get a hot dog after nine holes at the snack bar, and they'll have the hot dog, they'll take a quick bite, they'll put it in their cart, run to the tee box on number 10, and hit their drive, and while they're hitting their drive, the ravens have already come and taken their hot dog. I'm serious, it happens all the time. The ravens brought him the bread and the meat and left it. That's God's miraculous provision. No, <laughs> no, it was ravens that said yes, sir, to their creator. But then the brook dries up where he's at, and God says, I got a new there for you to be. And he tells them specifically what he's to do. Listen to me, folks. You're going to continually be in situations when the brook dries up. You're going to be continually in situations. Remember the illustration I shared with you a couple times ago about the, the path with the barking dogs versus the playground? You're going to see as we close tonight that God intentionally is going to leave the barking dogs. He's going to leave the situations that are going to cause you to have to deal with that anxiety, that nervousness. So that you would do what? Go to him. And in each situation, he will tell you what he wants you to do this time. We don't know of any other situation where ravens fed anybody. But remember, God doesn't duplicate his method, so that we'll keep checking with him. Go ahead, Chris. What's interesting there, too, is that God has already given Elijah permission to speak when it could rain. And when the brook dried up, he didn't just say, okay, let's make it rain. That's a really good point. Even though God had given permission to say no rain, he didn't take it in his own authority to say, well, let's have a little rain to fill my, my brook. Exactly. I like that. Folks, you're going to continually be going through things. Actually, you know when the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4 that we're not to be anxious about anything? Most of us have interpreted that as don't ever be anxious, right? But that's not what the passage is saying. Because the Bible says don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. Well, if I'm never anxious, I'm never going to talk to God. But it's, when it says don't be anxious... It's saying, don't stay there. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 and look at what the scripture says here. It's, it's almost, you read it and you go, I never saw that. Go to Matthew chapter 6. This passage is so familiar, sometimes we just kind of gloss over stuff. Go to Matthew chapter 6. And look at verses, we'll start in verse We'll start in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be what? Anxious for itself. Wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to be anxious. No, don't stay there. The anxiety is going to come. Remember I told you what Dick said? God's never let me down, but he scared me a lot. God's going to intentionally put you in situations that are going to scare you. You're going to be continually put in situations that are going to cause you to, in your flesh, want to react in a scared, anxious, worried way. And when you sense that, that's when you go to the Father and you make your request to Him and the peace that passes understanding will be given you. You don't stay there. Don't beat yourself up if you continue to worry. We all do. Remember how I shared with you the story about how God provided for us miraculously with all that food? 
Man, I can tell you story upon story upon story since then. My wife and I have been married 29 years this July. And you know what? That wasn't the only time we didn't think we were going to make it. And I wish I could tell you that ever since the grocery situation, we thought, don't worry, God's got this. No, we worried. We got anxious. But he again taught us, walked us through it. And our faith has been growing. It's been growing as we trust him. Go to John chapter 16. And the time we have left, I want to show you scripturally why God keeps sending us down the paths of the barking dogs. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All right, let me ask you an honest question. I want to show of hands here because it helps us all to see everybody else raise their hands. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have no trouble? Come on, let's be honest. Wouldn't we, we've all had that thought. Wouldn't it be nice to have no trouble? What we've all just said was, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was wrong? Because he has already said, in this world you have trouble. Okay, next show of hands. Um, okay, how many of you could say, okay, I'll admit, in this world we'll have trouble. Jesus said you'll have trouble. But I'd just like a couple of days off. Anybody ever had that one? Lord, just give me a couple of days off. Remember what he's already said here in Matthew 6. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Folks, get it in your head. God has left us here in the midst of trouble for a reason. The answer is right here. Why? That we'll come to him. In this world you'll have trouble in me, you'll have peace. Yes, ma'am. Pastor, years ago, said there's only um, three kinds of people. There's either people going in for a tribulation, in the middle of one, or coming out. You got it. You got it. And that's, that's the truth from the scripture. But God's done it so that you will get to know him more. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says here in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, by the way, this is the Paul that already knew he was saved, right? That knew he was going to heaven. He wasn't saying, I hope I'm saved. I hope I get to heaven. What he was saying is, I want to know Christ even more. And I also know that the only way to get to know him more is to go through suffering because it's in suffering that our real learning happens. Any of you have ever been through, like some of us have, the battle of cancer? You'll, you've learned a lot more through that than you ever really did about who Jesus is. And nobody can understand it until they've been there themselves. 
this, I'm leaving tomorrow morning with Becky at 6 a.m. to go to the Orlando airport to fly to Chicago because on Friday and Saturday, and I'm going to come back in time to preach at Indy Atlantic on Sunday, but on Friday and Saturday up in Chicago is going to be a reunion of folks from the church that I used to pastor up there, and we haven't seen each other in 20 years. And we're just going to get together. We're not having a homecoming or anything like that. We're just going to get together up there in Chicago and just encourage each other in the Lord. We've just sent word out through Facebook and whatever. People are coming from North Carolina and others are coming from Missouri and we're coming from Florida and people are coming from all around. We're going to meet back up in Chicago on Friday and Saturday. We're just going to eat together and encourage each other. I'm going to teach them some things that God's been showing me over the years from the word. And I can't wait to go see some of these folks again. And one couple I can't wait to go see are Walter and Diane Tereschenko. Because when I was a young pastor in Chicago, barely 30 years old, Walter was my mechanic. He was in the church there, and he and his family had a mechanics business. And then Walter got cancer real bad, and Walter had to go through chemo. And Walter would have chemo, and then two days of no chemo, and then chemo, and then two days of no chemo. And he would literally throw up on the two days between as he was still working on cars. And when it was all done, and the Lord had healed him through this process, I went and visited him, and Walter sat in, in the living room, and he said this to me. He said, Jim, we just want to tell you what God's done through this cancer struggle and this cancer journey. And he said, it probably make no sense to you. But if you were to ask me if I had a choice to start over and not go through the chemo and not go through the cancer, but I wouldn't have all the things that God revealed about himself through it, or I would choose to get the stuff that he taught me, but I'd have to go through cancer again, he said, I'll look you in the eye and tell you right now, I would say, bring me the cancer. Give me the chemo. And as a young preacher boy, I was trying to pretend that I was spiritual. And I, under oh, yeah, I understand. I understand, Walter. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's very deep. I didn't know what he was talking about. But now I do. Now I do. I can't wait to go see Walter and hug his neck. Say, what an encouragement you were to me back then, even though you didn't know it. I've walked that road now too. And I don't like, didn't love cancer either. And I didn't love chemo either. But I understand what you're saying. God did things in my walk with him that I would never want to lose. And if I had to do it again, I'd do it again. Because of how real. Folks, there's a knowing of Jesus that will never happen if you're not going through struggles. He's going to take us deeper than we ever would understand. We keep thinking, no trouble, or at least give me some days off. What we're really saying is, I don't want to know Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus? You want to really get to know him? Stop looking for the ice cream path and be willing to go down the barking dog's path. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough anxiousness for itself. You walk with me today. You've heard me say this over the years, and I'm going to keep saying it. If you walk with Jesus every single day, you'll end up where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. I'm going to close tonight by taking you to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. 
I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David didn't say, I didn't have any fears. No, don't stay anxious. It doesn't mean you won't get anxious. He delivered me from all my fears, and those who look on him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer in want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you of the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. See, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Think his eyes roam to and fro, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Doesn't say that they won't have trouble. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 28? God works for the good. Doesn't say everything will be good, but he works for the good for those who what? Love him and are the called according to his purpose. Many are the afflictions, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Let me read that to you again. I want you to let the scripture sink into your heart. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Did anybody catch something there at the very end? Look at verse 29. Sorry, 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. It's Jesus. Has anybody caught it yet? We, we, we saw it a little bit earlier in Psalm 8. That as God is speaking to us about his love for us, the prophecies always start pointing toward an individual, don't they? It's all about him. That's why Paul said, I, I gave up a lot. And I've suffered loss because of my following Jesus. That's okay. Because I want to know him more. And even if that means I suffer more, I want it. Because I'm not living for this life. I'm living for the one to come. So folks, take your eyes off a of man. Stop looking at what you're worried about. And when those anxieties come... Go to him. He will deliver you from every single problem. Today, he didn't promise that. He'll deliver you from every single problem. How about tomorrow? No, don't put words in his mouth. Next week, Jim, again, let him determine when. What I always tell people when I was a pastor and would visit them um, at the hospital right before they had surgery. I'd always say a couple of things. One was, I'd always tell them, when you put on the hospital gown, the end is in sight. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. Other times I would say, when surgery happens, lay still. And then the last thing I would say was this. Don't get off the operating table until the surgeon's done. Don't get off the operating table until the surgeon's done. I love you. See you next week. Thanks for coming.